Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hey everybody, it's great to have you join us for this Bible Study podcast as we begin a brand new series through the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. My passion for teaching God's Word includes expository teaching as well as teaching verse by verse. Expository or expositional teaching describes a method of explaining what a particular Bible verse or passage says, what it means, and how to apply it. And that lines up with the Apostle Paul's exhortation to Timothy to rightly divide the Word of Truth. With that, I also believe in the importance of teaching verse by verse. Paul assured the church leaders in Acts 20 that he had not shied away from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. That only happens as we go through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Now, something that is helpful in beginning a series in any book of the Bible like this one is to give it a proper introduction. Knowing the background information, such as who wrote it, who it was written to, and why it was written, is so helpful for understanding both the meaning and the message of that particular book. I also invite you, if possible, to follow along in your Bibles for each of these podcasts as we study God's Word. Now, I understand that won't work for all of you because some of you are doing something else as you listen to the podcast. You're multitasking. Maybe you're driving or you're exercising or working, or some of you are just lying in bed with the lights off, hoping that the sound of my voice will cure your insomnia. Trust me, I get it. But for those who are able to follow along in their Bibles and maybe even take notes, I invite you to do so. Well then, without further delay, let's dive into our introduction of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, beginning with some background information. The three epistles of John are part of the New Testament, 27 books of the Bible, and you can divide the New Testament up into four sections or four categories. The first category is biography. That's the four Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They describe the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The second category then is history, which is recorded in the book of Acts, describing the history of the early church from its beginning and on through about the first 30 years or so. The third category are, is, and are the epistles, the 21 letters starting with Romans and ending with Jude. The epistles give us much needed doctrine along with practical instruction for Christian living. And then the fourth category is prophecy, contained in the book of Revelation, and that describes future events. The author of these three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus during his three-plus years of ministry. We'll talk more about why we believe John wrote these letters in just a moment, but let's go back to the 21 New Testament epistles. Of those 21 letters, we know that the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of them, or maybe 14, if he was the author of Hebrews. Hebrews is that one book of the New Testament in which the author remains unknown. 
The other seven New Testament letters then, not written by Paul, were written by James, Peter, John, and Jude. With that in mind, the 21 New Testament epistles can be divided up into two sections, the Pauline epistles, those written by Paul, and the non-Pauline epistles, those written by others. It's worth noting that this author, John, wrote a total of five New Testament books, and those books fall into three of our four New Testament sections or categories that we just discussed. He wrote the Gospel of John, that's the category of biography. He wrote these three letters in the category of epistles, and he wrote Revelation in the category of prophecy. John's Gospel takes us to the past, to the theme of salvation. Revelation, on the other hand, takes us to the future with the theme of Christ's coming. And his epistles deal with the present age, the theme of Christian living and love. John's gospel is about faith, Revelation is about hope, and the epistles that he wrote are about love. Faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Which brings us back to the writing of these epistles. Since the writer of these letters does not identify himself, why do we believe that John wrote them? Let me just begin that conversation by saying that John's authorship of these letters was really never seriously questioned. There's really no controversy here, but it's a question we need to address. John's authorship begins with many well-known church leaders and writers living in the second century. They recognize John as the author of these epistles. They included well-known leaders like Polycarp, Papias, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement, and Justin Martyr. Polycarp's testimony is especially significant because he was not only a disciple of John's, but also a close friend. As far as we know, no one else was even really seriously suggested as being the author of these letters. Secondly, these epistles were written in much the same style as the Gospel of John. There are particular words and expressions and phrases that are similar sometimes even the same, and some of those are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Thirdly, though the author does not identify himself by name, he does make it very clear that he was not only an eyewitness of Jesus and his ministry, but that he had a very close relationship with Christ in which he heard, saw, and even handled Jesus personally. And according to 1 John 1.1, he did so from the beginning, referring to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That identifies the author as being one of the original disciples. Now, according to John's own gospel, he and Andrew were originally disciples of John the Baptist. Then after Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist pointed his followers towards Jesus. John and Andrew immediately began to follow Jesus you remember the Lord turned and said, what do you seek? And they responded and said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus said, well, come and see. John then met the Lord at the very beginning of his ministry. And according to John's gospel, chapter one, again, John and Andrew met Jesus first. Then Andrew introduced his brother Peter to the Lord. The next day, Philip met Jesus and then Nathaniel. So several of the disciples had already met and spent time with Jesus from the first days of his ministry. Then later on in Galilee, Jesus began to call those same men and others to become his full-time disciples. 
According to Matthew's gospel, Jesus was walking along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and when he saw Peter and Andrew, he called to them to come and follow him as disciples. And we read that they immediately followed him. It helps them to remember they had already met and spoken with Jesus. So when he called them to become full-time disciples, they were ready, willing, and wanting to go. Shortly after that, Jesus saw two more fishermen, Again, another pair of brothers. This time it was James and his brother John. Jesus also called them to follow him as disciples, and they too immediately forsook everything and followed Christ. But again, we know that John had met and spent time with Jesus previously, though we're not sure if James had. James and John are identified as being the sons of a man named Zebedee. Huh. That's quite a name, right? Zebedee? That's not one you hear used today. It's good to use Bible names, but I don't hear people naming their children Zebedee. Anyway, their mother is identified later in the Gospels as Salome. She too became a follower of Jesus, and in the Gospels, we find her asking Jesus if her two sons can sit on each side of Jesus in the heavenly kingdom. James and John were called the sons of thunder, and in my opinion, their mother wasn't far behind. As the Gospels progress, Salome was watching the crucifixion from a distance with other women. She was with some women on Sunday morning, coming early to the tomb to finish anointing the body, only to discover that the tomb was empty. As far as Zebedee, the father of James and John, we don't know if he was a believer or not, but mom certainly was. Scholars concur that John was the youngest of Christ's 12 disciples. As some of you probably know, excluding Judas Iscariot, who took his own life after betraying Jesus, he went out and hung himself, 10 of the 11 disciples were martyred for their faith in the years that followed the birth of the church. For example, in Acts 12, we read that James, the older brother of John, was beheaded by Herod. The Bible doesn't record the deaths of other disciples, but we have reliable resources like the Book of Martyrs written by John Fox, which describes how those disciples lost their lives. In that book, for example, it records that Paul was beheaded outside of Rome. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome, and Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Ethiopia. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, John had become the pastor of the church at Ephesus. At one point, John was arrested and taken from Ephesus to Rome to be executed, but God protected him. Ultimately then, he was banished and exiled to the island of Patmos, where he received and recorded the revelation. At that time, Patmos was just a rocky, barren island in the Mediterranean Sea. So I guess to borrow an Ernest Hemingway title, John was quite literally the old man in the sea. When a new Roman emperor came to power, John was released from Patmos, and he lived out his final years in Ephesus at the very end of the first century, possibly even the very early part of the second century. Now, as far as when these letters were written, we return to those witnesses, those early church leaders who not only recognized John as the author, but also that his five New Testament books were all written towards the end of the first century. John affectionately refers to his readers as little children. That ties into his elderly age. 
Chronologically speaking, John's five New Testament books were the last ones written near the end of the first century. John wrote his gospel somewhere between AD 85 and 90. The first three gospels had already been around for 25 to 30 years, but when a heresy, a false teaching started threatening the faith of second and third generation believers, John was led of the spirit to write his own firsthand gospel account of Jesus with a particular focus on the deity of Christ. Then around 90 to 95, John wrote his three epistles for second and third John. In first John, he doesn't identify who he's writing to, but as a pastor living in Ephesus and as the last living apostle of Jesus, he was undoubtedly writing to the churches there in that area, in and around Ephesus, as well as church believers at large. It was undoubtedly intended for his letter to be circulated among the believers in the churches. John was then banished to the island of Patmos, where he received and wrote Revelation. That was probably around AD 95. From there, after he was released, he returned to Ephesus, where he lived out his few remaining years. As a pastor, I've personally had the privilege of visiting that area of first century Ephesus, during the course of a couple of church tours that we took called In the Footsteps of Paul. And visiting the ruins of ancient Ephesus there in southern Turkey and getting to teach there was incredibly special. It was humbling and it's something that I'll never forget to walk among those amazing ruins of Ephesus and knowing that church leaders like Paul and Apollos and John had all ministered there. Well, it was really exciting. In fact, let me just say to you that if your church or a ministry you follow is taking a trip to Israel or to the Mediterranean in the footsteps of Paul, please pray about going. I can't recommend it enough for any committed Christian. It's the spiritual trip of a lifetime, and you'll never read your Bible the same once you've done that. Well, let's talk a little bit about why John wrote these epistles. After the death of the Apostle Paul in the mid to late 60s, a false doctrine, a heresy called Gnosticism, taught by false teachers called Gnostics, began to develop. By the end of the first century, it was spreading rapidly. At that time, John was overseeing the churches in Asia Minor from his home and headquarters in Ephesus. Now, we could spend a lot of time dissecting and discussing the heresy of Gnosticism, but simply put, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know or all-knowing. The Gnostics then claimed to have superior knowledge and enlightenment that they only possessed. Of course, it didn't come from the Bible. They said it was a special spiritual enlightenment that they received from above. Gnosticism was the opposite of agnosticism. Agnostics claim that we can't know about God. Charles Spurgeon used to joke that the Greek word agnostic was the same as the Latin word ignoramus. To claim that we can't know about God is to deny the revelation of creation and the inspiration of scripture. That was true in Spurgeon's days in the 1800s and it's still true today. But on the opposite end of the scale, the Gnostics not only claim to know God, they also claim to possess superior knowledge. One of the things they claimed to know was that deity and humanity could not be united. Their reasoning was that all human flesh was evil, therefore deity, God, would never unite himself to anything evil. 
But as the Bible makes abundantly clear, Jesus was both God and man, yet without sin. So it doesn't take long to see where this heresy was going. The Gnostics denied the humanity of Jesus. Of course, the serious error with that false teaching is that it denies the incarnation, the birth of Jesus in human form. As a result, it torpedoes the truth of salvation because the Savior had to be deity, he had to be God in order to be sinless, and at the same time, he had to become flesh and blood in order to die for our sins. That basic understanding of Gnosticism then opens up the first four verses for us and helps us to see why John was adamant that Jesus was God and man, which he and the other disciples saw, heard, and touched. On the evening of Resurrection Sunday, you may recall that Jesus appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem, probably at the upper room. When Jesus suddenly appeared in the room on the other side of locked doors, the disciples were frightened and thought that he was a spirit or a ghost. Jesus said to them, Behold my hands and feet, that it is me, referring to his crucifixion wounds. And then Jesus said to them, Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus died in a human body, and he rose again from the dead in a glorified body. Another error of Gnosticism was the teaching that people could live and behave however they wanted. Why? Because all flesh was evil and only the spirit was good. So they didn't believe that immorality could or would affect their spirituality. That led John in the latter part of the first chapter of his epistle to declare that anyone claiming to have no sin as being a liar and deceiving themselves while denying the truth. Gnosticism was a threat to the early church in the first three centuries. It was a very serious heresy. Therefore, John wrote to the whole church, encouraging believers to stand strong in the truth. And in fact, truth is a key word that John uses. It's found like 20 times in 1 John. John gives us several identifying marks of what it means to be a genuine believer in the course of his first epistle. Things like not practicing habitual sin, loving the brethren, obeying Christ's commands, and so forth. And we'll review those those birthmarks, those identifying marks in the course of this series. That was one of the reasons John wrote these epistles, but there were other reasons as well. In fact, let me kind of just mention that John in his writing had this pattern of putting the keys either at the front door or the back door of his writings, keys that explained why he was writing. Many of the local nurseries and hardware stores today, they'll sell these fake rocks and they look like fake rocks, right? Or fake animal figures. And theoretically, you can place them outside with your house key hidden inside in case you get locked out. The glaring problem with that is they look very much like false rocks, you know, fake rocks and fake animals. And so everybody knows what they are and they know what they are there for. So I wouldn't recommend hiding your keys in them. Anyway, in his gospel, John put the key at the back door. John 20, 31, John said, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Therefore, John's gospel was written to help convince people that Jesus is God and the sole source of salvation. Therefore, if you're trying to share with an unsaved person 
who is willing to read a portion of scripture, you should invite them to read John's gospel. One well-known pastor shares the story about a businessman who was at his church and they were talking and the man shared with the pastor that he'd been to church, he had heard the gospel from others, but he himself remained unconvinced. So the pastor gave him a New Testament, encouraged him to read John's gospel, and then ended the conversation. The man was quite surprised. He expected that pastor to make much more of an effort to try to convert him. That's it? The stunned man asked. The pastor explained, yes, that's it. I can't convert you, but John's gospel was written to convince skeptics like yourself about the truth of Christ. So why don't you read it and make your own decision? Well, that man went home, ended up reading the gospel of John twice, returned to the church sometime later. He shared with that same pastor that he had become convicted and convinced of his sin, of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, and of his need for salvation, and he made a commitment to Christ. That's one of the main reasons why John wrote the fourth gospel. Some 50 years after Calvary and some 25 to 30 years after the first gospels had already been written to help convince people of the truth about Jesus, the gospel for the next generation, I guess. Then in Revelation, John puts the key at the front door. In Revelation 1.1, John explains that it was the revelation of Jesus Christ about the things that must come to pass in the near future and the ultimate triumph of Christ at his second coming. That also includes the establishment of the millennial kingdom here on earth in the future. Now here in the first epistle, John actually puts keys at both the front and back doors. In 1 John 1.4, at the front door, he tells us these things were written so that your joy may be full. Then John puts another key at the back door, 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. In addition to having joy in our salvation, John also wants us to have the assurance of our salvation. Now think about this. With just three of John's New Testament books, you could help different people in different ways. If it's an unsafe person we're talking about who's willing to examine the truth, you can invite them to read the Gospel of John. If they're a believer, on the other hand, lacking assurance and understanding of their salvation, you should invite them to read 1 John. And if they're looking for understanding about the future, then you can invite them to read Revelation. So then, what can an elderly man around 90 years of age, living in Asia Minor at the end of the first century, share with us today? Well, let me just say, a lot because his letters are the inspired word of God. In fact, in 1 John, he wrote about right living in a wrong world, and that is certainly a message that the church desperately needs to hear today. It had been about 60 years since John had walked with Jesus. The church was under attack, both from persecution and from that terrible heresy of Gnosticism. The elderly Apostle John, the last living disciple of Jesus, knew that he needed to encourage the church before he went to heaven. He had more years behind him than he had months ahead of him, but the church would listen to him and he had something very important to say. 
John reminded them what authentic Christianity looked like. And that's going to be the title of this series as we continue on authentic Christianity. So then as we wrap up this introduction into 1 John and 2nd and 3rd John as well, we'll see in our future studies that he wrote these epistles so that our joy might be full. The reality of Jesus as our Savior, the fact that he has forgiven us of our sins and that we have the very real hope and promise of eternity in heaven and that our fellowship is with him in the gospel, all of that and more brings great joy to our hearts and lives. Along with that, this letter was written to give us confidence and assurance of our salvation. John will present us with several identifying marks for the genuine believer, which in turn will strengthen our confidence and our assurance of saving faith. So until our next study, the Lord bless you and keep you.